Hey, this is Genre from Civil Politics, and you are listening to a Civil Politics Supplemental, a special one because I was able to interview my cousin, Shanae Lewis, who is running for DC City Council. I was really excited to get to talk to her. It's a great interview. I hope you enjoy it. But before we get into that, I wanted to let everybody know, if you want to know more about Civil Politics, our weekly discussion show that covers a bunch of different topics from local to national news, uh, then you can go to civilpoliticsradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at CivilPoliticsFM. You can go to Facebook.com slash CivilPoliticsRadio as well. If you want to know more about Janae Lewis, you can go to our show notes on this podcast or on CivilPoliticsRadio.com. We have a bunch of links uh, for her and her work. But without further ado, here is my interview with Janae Lewis. Okay, so I'm on a cruise with it's a basically a family reunion reunion thing yeah. and uh we're at this big dinner for for new year's and we're sitting down we're, we're eating and and the and my aunt and uncle get up and they make this this speech about like how it's greatest family and then this random cousin gets up <laughs> she stands up and says hi i'm running for dc council <laughs> Just out of nowhere. And I'm like, wait, what? It's like, if you want us help, if you want to have donations, then that would be really great because I'm doing public financing. And I don't know if you remember it. Uh, <laughs> like, one person clapped after you said that. I was <laughs> that was you? Yeah. Oh, awesome. Most I'm, people probably have no idea what that I means. <laughs> so this is my cousin... <laughs> Janae, Janae. Lewis. I just yeah. want to make sure I get that right. Janae yeah. Lewis, yeah. Uh, she is running for DC County City Council. Which ward? Uh, the at large position. At large, bill. Yeah. Oh. Yes. Well then. Yes. 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 <laughs> Big shot. Okay. <laughs> so she's running for the at large position on the on DC Council. And how long have you been in the DC area? Like, so I was born in the DC area yeah. in Prince George's County. Um, and I lived there until I was 18 and went away to college. Yeah. Um, I lived away for 12 years, came back in 2010. Okay. Um, and since I came back in 2010, I've lived in DC. I did some looking into you. Yeah. <laughs> and currently you're, um, with, uh, philanthropy mm-hmm. thing. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, the National Committee for Responsive Philanthropy. It's a nonprofit organization, a national nonprofit organization. And the work that I do is leading our engagement with foundations all over the country and really pushing foundations to give more grant dollars to social justice work and system change strategies. Something that we've we've been talking about and what a lot of people talk about is like how philanthropy mm-hmm. giving works, yeah. um, especially with the with the rich and how that money gets funneled. Yeah, there was something on the website, and it's uh, the NRC NCRP NCRP. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, uh, <laughs> there's uh, on the website. It like it's like you said, it's to go towards equity mm-hmm. um, and social justice. Uh, I will put some links to that website and wrote a couple articles I was reading, which were really, really cool. Um, how anti-Semitism, anti-black, uh, blackness, uh, racism has really been fueling white supremacy. Yeah. Um, I think you read that like last year, the year before. Yeah, it was last year. Yeah. yeah. So that was, uh, that was really interesting. So I'll, I'll definitely put that as a, a link on the site and in the show notes for the podcast. Yeah. So. We are based in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. so we don't know a lot about local city politics. Yeah. So what are 
the main what's the main thrust of your campaign like what that's going to be like what 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 local policies are you really interested in yeah um so a lot of folks have asked asked me that question around the election and with this campaign i'm actually trying to do something a little different which is looking at policy solutions that don't focus on one issue but actually hit at multiple issues because we lead multi-issue lives right so the reason i decided to run is because uh, i remember dc from growing up as a place where community can really anchor and where people who wanted to build a life for themselves could do that and that's all kinds of people folks of different races folks of different socioeconomic economic backgrounds. Mm-hmm. We're losing that as a city. Uh, the policies that we're creating aren't creating a city where people can live there and thrive, especially yeah. with their families. So all of the issues that relate to that from housing uh, to economic development and small business opportunities to transportation to our education system, all of those issues are important to me. But this campaign is really about engaging the community and inviting people to come up with creative solutions for ourselves and for our communities that hit at multiple issues. So really the um, bringing people in to help them uh be more involved in the process. Absolutely. So I have been having visioning conversations all over the city. We have eight wards in DC Mm -hmm. and I have had a visioning conversation in almost all eight wards. It will be all eight wards by the time of my (laughs) launch um, this month, January 14th. But um, we've had visioning conversations with community residents all over the city. And some of these folks are community activists. Um, Some of these are just regular people who care about making the community a better place. And the conversations are informing my policy platform. So on January 14th uh, at the launch event, we will share a little bit more about the details of that. So um, can you explain uh, visioning? Yes. Um, So most of my career has been in the social justice nonprofit world. Mm -hmm. um, And I have a background in conflict resolution, bringing people together across divides to come up with creative solutions. Right. And so the vision and conversations are not typical political meet and greets. It's not so much asking the candidate what the candidate is going to do for the community. But um, I posed a question to the group about our budget surplus. The city has uh, several hundred millions of dollars in budget surplus. Really? And we have had that for several years now. And so we had a conversation in all eight wards about what might we use that budget surplus to do to improve our communities. Can you tell me what the, like, where that surplus comes from? Because, like, a lot of, a lot of cities, they, they don't really have, like, a, like, a substantial rainy day fund. Yeah. So, is that just from, uh, higher taxation? Is that from a, uh, property something? Or, or, like, is that left over from, from another project? So, what, where did that come from? So the budget surplus comes from a lot of different sources. There are some taxes that have specific allocations, so um, environmental benefits or education benefits. Right. Um, but a large portion of the surplus has come from um, uh, the increase in wealthier people in the city. So uh, I've been back since 2010, and certainly since I've been back, um, the average median income in the city has skyrocketed. Skyrocketed. That's yeah. right. Um, and that makes it really difficult when we calculate um, what it means to be affordable or create affordable housing or access for affordability in the city. Um, it becomes really tricky to calculate that when the average median income is skyrocketing. So uh, that that is a, a portion of where the surplus is coming from. So really when you're thinking about what you're going to try to do is at large. Mm -hmm. Um, It's going to be like an array 
of of things that to help the city, not just a few singular issues. Um, are you going to hold these vision visioning connection? I, I don't know what visioning conversations com, com, conversation. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, are you going to hold these uh, these visioning conversations like throughout? Like if you get elected, when you get elected. Whatever. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, clearly I'm biased, but whatever. Right. Uh, <laughs> vote if you if you live in D.C. Clearly, if you've heard me talk about stuff, it runs through the family. So, uh, obviously, she's gonna win. But um, what, are you gonna hold these these uh, connections like when like when you get elected, like throughout your your tenure there? So yeah, some format of it because. Like I said, most of my career has been social justice. Um, I was a community organizer for a long time. Empowerment is very, very important to me. So uh, for people in Washington, D.C. to feel empowered, to believe that they can make an impact in their communities and make a change in the city is really impa- important to me. And people feel empowered when they are empowered, when yeah. they have a clear access and means to have a voice, they have clear access and means to influence decisions. And right now, um, I talk to a lot of people, again, across race, class, age, gender, who don't feel empowered. They see a yeah. lot of things happening in the city. They don't know exactly why they're happening. They don't know exactly how to make a difference. So uh, whether it's the same structure of visioning conversation that I've been having or some other community engagement process, I think it's really critical for all council members, including at-large council members, uh, to, to continue to find structured ways to engage community in a way that makes sense, where someone's voice really does make a difference. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that, is, that sense is true you know, everywhere, especially on a, and on a national scale. You were talking about like how it like change and uh, people feeling empowered about their community. So I'd like to switch up to like statehood. Mm-hmm. So that if if anybody listening doesn't know, uh, DC is not a part of any state. It's not. It's federally uh, managed. Technically, like a lot of the the, the power in in DC is with Congress. But a lot of that power has been given to the city council, mm-hmm. um, which is really great. And the, and the mayor. <laughs> and the mayor, of mm-hmm. course. Of course yeah. mm-hmm. um, but we're not, we don't really care about it. <laughs> uh, but what do you think about, instead of being the District of Columbia, um, being an actual state and having powers of a, of a state? Yeah, it's really important to a lot of D.C. residents that we have that representation. Right, um, right now we have folks, uh, Eleanor Holmes Norton, for example, yes. who participate in our Congress, but they don't have we don't have full representation. Yeah, um, there's an organization, several organizations in D.C. have been working for decades to help us attain uh, statehood, and we've made some progress. Uh, we had a hearing in the House of Representatives in September of 2019 mm-hmm. um, that had over 200 co-sponsors, and we were able to make our case for why D.C. needs to be a state. Um, but this is a very long-term game because in order for D.C. to become a state, it would have to pass both chambers of Congress and yes. have to be approved by the President of the United States. And, uh, you know, we need to continue to raise awareness across the country about why this this is important. But it's important for D.C. residents so that we have full home rule and that we can govern ourselves uh, and not um, be beholden to um, the the changing tides of Congress, depending on right. <laughs> who has the majority, depending on a larger political climate, um, not be used as as a bargaining chip. Yeah, or a football or... <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, like, bouncing back and forth, like, 
And, and, you know, we pay taxes. Yeah. Uh, we pay taxes just like everyone else. And to not have that voting representation in Congress is um, actually uh, not in line with the values of our country. Not at all. <laughs> not it's at all. Of, that was kind of the whole point. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So you mentioned this, uh, the home, home rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you go into that? Yeah. So as I mentioned, um, we have uh, a shadow representative in the U.S. Senate and we have um, a representative in the House of Representatives in the House. Um, but neither representative has voting rights in Congress. Right. In the House, um, Eleanor Holmes Norton can introduce bills or co-sponsor bills, but she cannot vote in the same way that other members of Congress can vote. Um, and so that makes a big difference. I think the most problematic part of the relationship is that every year our budget has to be approved by, by the U.S. Congress. And, uh, you know, many of the folks in the U.S. Congress, obviously they have residency in other states. Right. Um, they may not necessarily be interested in the quality of life for the lived day-to-day experiences of D.C. residents, yet they have the authority to say whether or not um, our budget is sound. Right. And, you know, that's that's a huge problem. It really should be people who are most directly affected by our budget and by legislation who are making the decisions about how that money is spent, and, that, and that's D.C. residents. Yeah. Um, one of the things I always t- uh, tell people when talking about how the like how the country is really set up, there's these, there's the federal government, but then each state is kind of their own little kingdom mm-hmm. and they can run themselves. They have their own money. They can tax the, um, their residents apart from the federal government. And, but DC just doesn't have that. And the powers that, that are afforded to the, to the council can be just overridden by Congress, mm-hmm. by federal Congress at any point. Mm-hmm. Um, the thought behind having a district that's not part of any state is really a good one mm-hmm. a while ago, <laughs> especially when it was supposed to be a safe haven for slave owners. That was that's great. Uh, <laughs> well, if you haven't listened to the show before, uh, we are both African American, yes. <laughs> so yes. uh, that's something I'm sure. Like I think about a lot. I'm sure that you think about um, like the the history of DC and and how it has changed, how it's grown to be like a, a very like a black city in in a lot of ways. Um, but I'm sure that which is changing again. Changing, actually, like I was saying, that was, it's changing a lot, especially because of the. Uh, the change in demographics, change in socioeconomic demographics as, yep. as well. Um, I want to go into your work in philanthropy. Sure. Uh, and like I think we mentioned it before, but the uh, the way that the rich can affect policy mm-hmm. through philanthropy, with uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. through giving. Um, what are your your views on on uh, foundations, organizations like that? Like, how do you specifically in politics? Yeah. Well, um, yeah. so it's it's tricky. So uh, I think there are a couple contextual pieces to hold. So the organization I work for is under Tax Code five hundred one c three, which means that it is not allowed by law to engage directly in partisan politics. Yeah, that's a uh, um, issue based. Um, well, no, not no? issue based. Oh, so okay. it's it's partisan. So they cannot um, a five hundred one c three cannot 
uh, say we are an organization for Democrats or for Republicans or what have you. They also cannot endorse an individual candidate. Um, and so that makes the position that I'm in tricky because I am a candidate, yet I work for a 501c3 organization. Mm-hmm. Um, so I will say that anything that I'm saying now is not representative of NCRP um, because NCRP does not engage in partisan politics yeah. or endorse particular candidates. Um, that said, generally speaking, you know, foundations... Uh, foundations typically are 501c3 organizations, um, but they can engage in our political process in a lot of ways. They can fund organizations that do voter education, voter engagement, civic engagement more broadly, and many foundations do, but quite frankly, not enough. Um, There is another tax code, 501c4, which allows uh, organizations to lobby more directly or engage more directly in elections. And many foundations um, are not aware of their capacity to engage in that space. So there are several groups who work to educate foundations on how to do that. I think that uh, in terms of individual donors, there's a lot of dark money in politics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, uh, you know, I'm actually not an expert in that space, so I can't particularly comment on it. But uh, D.C. has a new public financing law, and I chose to do public financing, um, which I can explain in a second, yes. because I think that it is more empowering for the people. So public financing um, allows, uh, basically it, it requires that a candidate not accept any corporate money. And that means um, a corporate PAC or any sort of collective of potentially wealthy donors who want to influence elections. Um, a corporation in general, a business in general cannot donate. Only individuals can donate and they can only donate at small amounts. What but, is a small amount? So for this race, it's $100. It's $100. $100. For the uh, ward seats on the city council, it's $50. Wow. And for the mayoral race, which is not up for election this year in D.C., it would be $200. Um, so that's a small amount. And the city, if you can get, uh, if you can meet a quota of D.C. residents to donate at $100 or less, mm-hmm. um, then the city will match those donations five times to one. Five times to five one. times to one, and the city will also give a grant to candidates. Uh, so again, for this rates, this race, it's it totals forty thousand dollars if you qualify. So if you get enough people to donate, then right. uh, do do you know the number for that? Yes. So it's two hundred and fifty people totaling twelve thousand five hundred dollars. So if you get two hundred fifty people getting, and you also have to get twelve thousand five hundred dollars, and then the the city will match that five times over. They will match those donations and any additional donations I receive from DC residents five to one. But if someone from Massachusetts, for example, were to donate to my election, the city will not match it. Is that allowed though? Yes. Someone from Massachusetts could donate to my election up to a hundred (laughs) dollars, but uh, the city wouldn't match it. It's allowed. (laughs) So hint. All right. So, Yes, it is allowed. <laughs> yeah, so good. Go yes. ahead. You know, I mentioned part of the reason why I'm running in this election is to help make D.C. a city where people can thrive, especially with their families and right. build community. Um, and I mentioned a couple of issues that are related to that. But I, I wanted to emphasize that, um, you know, I've worked for nonprofits most of my life. I've worked in the social justice sector most of my life. I've seen examples across the country 
of policy solutions and innovative collaborations at the municipal level that can really build equitable communities where people can thrive. And I want to bring that to the city council. Um, I am not deeply entrenched in uh, the D.C. political elite, which does exist. And I, of course, <laughs> of course it exists it did, everywhere. That would be weird. It exists it everywhere. <laughs> um, and I'm a, I'm a candidate for the people. I, I know a lot of good people in DC who have made DC their homes or who have been in DC for generations for whom DC is already their home. And they want DC to be a diverse place, an equitable place, and a place where they can grow there and grow their families there. Uh, so I, I just wanted to emphasize that the reason I'm running is so that all of us can can figure out a way forward together and, uh, you know, not to um, maintain the status quo. To give people the the tools to be a part of the, the process, like we were saying before, um, not just telling them, here's what we're going to do, but giving them a chance to be a part of the process. Absolutely. Yeah. And my part in that is bringing those best practices from other states and other organizations and other places and contributing to that pot of ideas. But I know that there are a lot of people in D.C. who've been working for years and years and years on issues like statehood or improving housing, um, who have the solutions, who know the answers, but uh, some of our elected officials really have and given them the right space or the right opportunity to put them into practice. And right. so leveraging the power of a political office to be able to do that while also contributing some of my own ideas is uh, the strategy that I plan to use as a city council person. Cool. Um, last thing I wanted to ask you is uh, just as a pers- perspective politician yes. in D.C., yes. you know, there's it, there's local issues, there's national issues. Yes. So... Uh, this upcoming election is going to be wild. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is going to be noisy and crowded and wild. Yes. It's going to be it's going to be really crazy. Um and I wanted to know how just as a DC resident like the, all of this stuff like with impeachment and with mm-hmm. with uh the elections coming up and and all this this different policy stuff does that there's all the stuff that we that we see outside, um, the people outside DC. We're watching the news. We're seeing what happens, like in in Congress and the White House and everything like that. How does that stuff affect you in DC? Does does it have a a direct effect or an indirect effect, or is that just in its own bubble? That's a great question. Um, the answer is yes and no. So DC is a very local place with very local people with very local issues. You know, there are kids in DC who live, uh, in Ward 7 where I live, um, in other neighborhoods near where I live who never visit, uh, the White House, who never visit the monuments, who never visit the Smithsonian, who really just never cross that bridge and experience the federal city or the international city as we know it. It really in DC, there's, there's the different, like the, there is, uh, different sections of the city and, and a lot of people don't cross those lines. So, I mean, I, my aunt, um, yeah, my, uh, on my other side, yeah. uh, <laughs> um, she, she lived and worked in DC. Yeah. So I visited there a lot when I was growing up and there's where all the, the national politics happens. And then there's other stuff like across the bridge that like you said, nobody really, there's not really a lot of crosshatching there. 
Absolutely. So there are very local and real issues and experiences that people have that don't intersect with the federal city. That said, um, you know, there are residual impacts. So um, let's see, this is 2020. I would say two, three, four years ago. I know. (laughs) Two, three, four years ago, there was a protest every week or every two weeks, which means that streets get shut down, which means that public transportation is limited, which means that, um, you know, this massive swell of people, you know, is coming into the city. And it got to a point where I couldn't even keep up anymore. And I'm fairly well informed, you know? Um, I should hope so. So I couldn't, I couldn't keep up with who was in town to protest what or to demonstrate about what. Um, there's a level of fatigue that happens. Just about to um, say. and it, there's also a, a, a level of surrealness that happens because there would be days where I would be going to, um, a, a dance class or going to hang out with my friends and we would stop by a protest for an hour and then we would go to brunch and it was just this very like bizarre, weird, um, experience of, of worlds intersecting. Right. Also, so- we have some folks coming into the city to protest who, uh, quite frankly, can be scary. You know, white nationalists have protested in D.C. two times in the last uh, two or three years. Um, They didn't get a pretty big turnout. In fact, D.C. turned out more people to counter protests, which I'm uh, very proud of. A couple of my friends actually went to D.C. (laughs) um, for to to counter protests. Yeah. Um, Which is really which is really great. Uh, yeah. Seeing like a hundred Proud Boys surrounded by like a thousand people. That's it's right. Really great. So, so yeah. So, um, you know, we're, it's inviting uh, a lot of different kinds of people. You know, the Trump administration, there are people who voted for Donald Trump or who are very supportive of Donald Trump's administration who are now frequenting the city, who now live in the city and work for the administration. Um, but I, I will say that again, for most people in DC, that doesn't impact our day-to-day lives. And unfortunately, uh, many of those folks are not invested in the livelihood of the city at the local level. And yeah. so many of them are concentrated to certain neighborhoods or, you know, certain social places. Um, they're not really interacting with, with the rest of the city. Yeah. Is that abnormal? Like when, uh, or is that, like you'd think that uh, just the people in any administration that come in, they get, they rent or they buy houses for like a few years and then they, then they bug out after four to eight years. Like do it, are they, have there been administrations that the people that work in the White House or that, that work that are staffers in, in the Congress that actually care about like the, the local issues and try to introduce stuff like that into their work? So I, I would say there's, Probably a partisan aspect to it because again, DC is majority Democrat. Yeah. So I think almost 80% of registered voters in Washington, DC are registered as Democrats. It's always pre solid. Yeah. Right. And so if there's, uh, you know, the House and the Senate tend to vacillate yeah. pretty frequently. But in terms of the White House administration, which does bring a lot of staff, um, if the president is a Democrat, then people are engaging in different ways at the local level than if the president is a Republican. All that said, um, there definitely is a distinction between the federal city and the international city, because remember, we have all the embassies right. and international organizations, um, as opposed to the local city. So there, there is a clear disconnect. Um, and something, because I have networks across 
all of those divides. I would actually like uh, through my campaign and as a city council person uh, to better engage folks who are participating in those different arenas, especially if they're buying property in D.C., and to help them think about D.C. as home, even if it's just on a temporary basis. Because when we think of a place as home, we treat it differently than if we think of it um, as a transient. I think that's a good place to end, like thinking about D.C. as home. That's uh, right. And being engaged in how you're how you how you live and how you work and how you exist in your home. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being on Soul Politics. Thank you for having me. (laughs) This was very serendipitous. I'm glad I I made that announcement at dinner. Crazy. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, this has been with my cousin, uh, Shanae Lewis. She is running for at-large council uh, for for D.C., and if you are in the D.C. area or if you are more interested in in her campaign, do you, on, on January 14th, whenever this airs, like what what would what will be your website? <laughs> right. So right now, the best way to find me is to follow me on Twitter at Ms. M.S. Janae Lewis. So it's M.S.J.E.A.N.N.E.L.E.W.I.S. So follow me on Twitter at Ms. Janae Lewis. Um, and then on Facebook, it's uh, Janae Lewis at large. Yeah. All right. So we will definitely have links to Twitter and to Facebook and to uh, some articles that you wrote yep. uh, for, for the organization. So, yeah, thanks for being on. Thank you for having me. Civil Politics is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com.